My name is Kimberly, and I am a um, church planter and pastor here in Phoenix, and then I'm also on the Surge leadership team. And I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Ephraim Smith um, here today just to share some wisdom with us, his heart with us, um, and information and just his um, just knowledge around the beloved community and multi-ethnic churches. And so, Ephraim, I'm going to let you go ahead and give a little more of an introduction on as to who you are. And then Ephraim will go ahead and share with us for a while, you all. And then we will be taking questions and you can put them in the Q&A um, tab at the bottom of your screen. And so after Ephraim's done talking, I'll be kind of going through those questions and, and posing them to him. So thank you for being with us, everybody. Ephraim, are you ready? Yes, I am. Awesome. It is great to be a part of this time. And uh, yes, I'm Ephraim Smith, and I'm in Sacramento, California, originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Currently, I serve as the co-senior pastor of Bayside Midtown Church. Uh, Bayside Midtown is a campus of a multi-site church called Bayside Church, uh, where every campus has its own senior pastor or co-senior pastor team. And I'm a part of uh, the urban multi-ethnic expression of Bayside Church. But prior to that, I've been a church planter, a youth pastor, uh, a denominational superintendent uh, with a significant focus on uh, church planting and church revitalization, especially in the urban and multi-ethnic context. My doctoral work at Fuller Seminary was on how um, multi-ethnic churches can move towards uh, leadership centers that equip and release cross-cultural, reconciling, justice-oriented disciple makers. So uh, that will inform uh, what I'm going to share with you today. So I want to start, since uh, Beloved Community is a part of our theme today, with um, words from the one most known for using the term, the phrase Beloved Community, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in a message that he preached called The Challenge of a New Age. What is the challenge for the church? What is the challenge for the United States of America? What is the challenge of, of the world as we look to the horizon before us? And um, so I want to read a little bit from uh, that message that uh, he actually preached uh, in 1956 uh, so this would have been early on in King's uh, serving and leadership in the civil rights movement. Um, and, and this would have also been around the time when he was already early in the movement thinking about throwing in the towel. Uh, he talks about a, um, a moment at the kitchen table uh, around midnight, having a cup of coffee, thinking about quitting the civil rights movement before it was really even fully off the ground as we know the civil rights movement today. And he had an encounter with God. He had an encounter with Jesus that gave him the courage, the strength to keep going. And that encounter with Jesus, I also believe, deeply informed Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision of the beloved community. So here's just a little bit from this message of Dr. Martin Luther King from the challenge of a new age. He says, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you. Pray for them that uh, despitefully use you, that you may be the children of your father which is in 
heaven. This echoes across generations. This love might well be the salvation of our civilization. This is why I am so impressed with our motto for this week as he's preaching this message, freedom and justice through love, not through violence, not through hate. No, not even really through boycotts, but through love. It is true that as we struggle for freedom in America, we will have to boycott at times. But we must remember as we boycott that a boycott is not an end within itself. It is merely a means to awaken a sense of shame within the oppressor and challenge their false sense of superiority. But the real end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this type of understanding goodwill that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of men to put it into our context today, humanity, because we got to bring the sisters in here. Can't just be talking about dudes. All right. Then he says, um, this Greek language comes out of another word, which is the highest level of love, agape. This is, this is not some sentimental or just basic affectionate love. It's goodwill for all of humanity. It's an overflowing love, which seeks nothing in return. He goes on to talk about this belief in God, that God is on the side of truth and justice. And this comes down from a long tradition of our Christian faith. I want to start talking about the beloved community uh, by raising the, 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 the challenging issue that I wonder if the church in the United States and around the world to a significant degree has lost sight that love truth and justice is the long tradition of the Christian faith. Something has happened where saying justice in some segments of the body of Christ has become some theological cuss word, some spiritual vulgarity to say justice. It's almost like you can't say justice. You got to figure out another word that's more palatable, but there is no understanding of the beloved community without a deep understanding of love, truth, and justice. Ah, but I want to go a little deeper. I don't think that when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about the beloved community, that he was simply talking about uh, some social construct, some social movement. I think Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is really pointing to the kingdom of God. And the beloved community became a palatable way uh, a, a more digestible way for the United States of America at the time to, to um, possibly see the true ends of the civil rights movement. I think he's talking about the kingdom of God because he refers to redemption and reconciliation every time he brings up the beloved community in messages. He refers to the agape love uh, found uh, most prominent in Jesus Christ, an unconditional love, a sustainable love, a transformative love. And so if he's talking about redemption and reconciliation and God and Jesus, then he's really pointing to the kingdom of God, which means for us today, the church in a time of crisis 
in a myriad of crises from a global pandemic that is virus-based to a racialized pandemic that the virus-based pandemic couldn't stop. Seems like COVID-19, though unfortunately is taking lives and it has uh, impacted millions, this virus-based pandemic was not able to halt, to pause a social pandemic that still is going viral across the planet. Uh, race, racism, racial injustice. And so there's still a great opportunity for the church if it has a deeply biblical, holistic understanding of its mission to um, have a significant transformation in its practice, in its, in its practical ecclesiology, that we might see the beloved community, the advancement of the kingdom of God as our right now work. That, that it is the right now work. That, that the church should not be co-opted by political party, by any nation, by any system or structure or institution of this world, but the church should be an embassy of the kingdom of God. The church should be an outpost of the kingdom of God. The church should be a collection of citizens of the kingdom of God, bringing the kingdom of God, the beloved community, to bear on brokenness, on injustice, on sin, not just housed in the soul, but sin housed in the very systems and structures and institutions of this broken upside down world until such time that Jesus returns and makes all things right forever. The church at its best is not a mouthpiece for nationalistic rhetoric of any kind. The church at its best is otherworldly. The church at its best is countercultural. The church at its best is the kingdom of God in humility, in love, in nonviolent resistance, in disciple making, in cross cultural intelligence, bringing the kingdom of God to bear, resisting the powers and structures of this broken world until such time as we experience eternity. So, I read some Dr. Martin Luther King. I mean, I love Dr. Martin Luther King. I mean, that's, man, this book right here. Hey, yes. So hold it up again so people can see the name of oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So The Essential Writings and Speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. It's called A Testament of Hope by uh, James Washington. Ooh-wee! Which I put is, it in the chat for people. Yeah. That ooh-wee, that's just uh, African-American Southern slang for it. You should order this book <laughs> as soon as possible. All right. Uh, now to the Bible. Okay. <laughs> so um, what is a picture, a glimpse of the beloved community of the kingdom of God so that the church might be more informed about what we're an outpost an embassy of until such time as Jesus returns. Uh, one of the places I go for that is revelation seven, nine. So revelation seven, really beginning with verse nine. And this is just one picture, one glimpse of heaven, of the kingdom of God that can inform how we operate as the beloved community, as the church. So Revelation chapter seven, beginning with verse nine. After this, I looked and there before me was the great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, 
people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe every tear from their eye. I want to give three pictures, three opportunities from this text for the church to consider as we operate as a sneak preview of the kingdom of God, as we serve as a visible expression of the beloved community. One is this whole idea of a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne. In heaven, there is a radical, eternal, Christ-centered diversity and inclusion. Not to be confused with diversity and inclusion of this world, but if we want a picture of sustained, radical, revolutionary diversity and inclusion, we should look to this picture of heaven, to Revelation 7, 9. A great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Heaven, the kingdom of God, the beloved community is Christ-centered, multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-tribal. And, and, and you can't count it. So those that are trying to guess how many people are going to be in heaven, stop it. Stop trying to use mathematical equations mixed with theological rhetoric to figure out how many chosen people have been predestined already to be in heaven. It's a multitude that no one can count. It's multi-ethnic, it's multicultural, it's multilingual, it's multiracial, it's multinational, and it's Christ-centered. This this group of the redeemed, of the changed. So whenever possible, the church should should seek to look like that. We live in an ever-increasing, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual mission field. Um, The majority of people on this planet live in cities, major metropolitan areas on the planet. And these metropolitan areas uh, across the world uh, are becoming more and more multicultural. London, uh, Sydney, New York, L.A., uh, Johannesburg. Uh, the, these places are becoming more and more multi-ethnic, more and more multicultural. So uh, what does it look like for the church as a sneak preview of heaven, as a picture of beloved community, to be a, a Christ-centered, multi-ethnic, reconciling community? Um, that, that means that we have to grow in our cross-cultural intelligence, 
This means we cannot deny the false man-made structures of race and, and how that has impacted our inability uh, to look like the beloved community. Majority of churches in the United States of America remain racially segregated. Based on this generous measurement, if your church is, uh, if your demographic of your church, if the dominant group is 80% or less, you can consider your church multi-ethnic. That is a gracious measurement. That's based on a book called United by Faith uh, by a group of Christian sociologists. I guess when the dominant group in a space is 80% or less, it becomes a tipping point for the minority groups to begin to find voice and place in that space. But based on that measurement, close to 70% of the churches in the United States of America, for instance, are still racially segregated. So even though the United States of America is becoming more and more a multicultural, multilingual, multi-ethnic mission field that is very diverse, yet deeply divided and polarized, this is a great missional opportunity for the church to be a Christ-centered, multi-ethnic, reconciling community committed to growing in our cross-cultural competencies and and, and not... um, demonizing uh, diversity development, not, not demonizing uh, training and, and, and equipping and empowerment that is needed to dismantle uh, the ways in which we're segregated and, and the ways in which oppression I- I exists within humanity. Okay, second point, because I'm, I'm running out of time here. I, I promised the great Reverend Kimberly that I would, I would, do this timing thing well, You're even, good. Though, even though I'm a black Baptist preacher. <laughs> I like put a buffer in there. There's a buffer. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. All right. So, but but I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm, 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 I'm going to the second point, which is okay. here. It says, um, verse 11, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, praising glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So I've talked about a Christ-centered, multi-ethnic community that is the beloved community. But I also want to talk about the supernatural existence, the supernatural existence and realities within the beloved community. What do I mean by that supernatural existence and realities in the beloved community? That the beloved community is not just focused on the visible. The, the, the beloved community is mindful of the supernatural in, in, in two ways. One, the beloved community, the church, if it operates as the beloved community, realizes that there are angels and heavenly forces that are real and exist and empower us and surround us and fuel us to do the work. Our power is not limited by uh, the physical power structures of this world. First century Christians understood this. It's what fueled them. It's because the, the visible power structures that they knew were limited at the time to the Roman Empire and to religious power structures like the Sanhedrin. 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And these structures opposed them. These structures incarcerated them. These structures brought bruises and bloodshed and brokenness and anxiety to their physical beings. So they needed to depend on supernatural, invisible powers that sometimes showed up, sometimes didn't, but they still had to have faith in them that there's something else out here besides the physical that is bringing weight and opposition and oppression upon my physical being as I seek to do the work of the kingdom of God, of the beloved community. We are surrounded by angels. We are surrounded by heavenly forces. We are empowered by an invisible yet real God. We are fueled by an invisible but real person in the Holy Spirit. We must be aware and we must acknowledge and, 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 and talk more because the disconnect between those resisting and protesting and seeking justice that don't know God is they are primarily just all um, dependent on the physical. And it can weigh on you psychologically and emotionally when you're doing everything you can in the physical to resist oppression and injustice and brokenness systemically. And all you depend on is the physical and, and, and the visible. But what, what should be the distinctive is though we suffer and though everything doesn't always come out right in the instant as we're on our way to the realization of the victory of Christ, we operate knowing that there are invisible forces that are with us. We are not alone. God is with us. God is on the side of justice and truth and reconciliation and redemption and new life. We are not alone. We're also mindful that there are invisible, demonic, evil forces uh, behind these physical structures and institutions that oppose the will of God, that oppose beloved community, that oppose God's kingdom. We are aware of the supernatural. Um, and then finally, it says in verse 13, then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation." So for time, it says here uh, that, you know, that these people that have come out of the great tribulation, they are now in the kingdom of God. They are now experiencing eternal beloved community. And it says, and he who sits on the throne, Christ, God, shelters them, feeds them, gives them drink, and gives them community and resources them in such a way in eternity that they'll never thirst, they'll never hunger, the sun beating on them for the African-American church, we would see that as a reference to slavery, as a reference to plantations. That, that's, that's how the, the antebellum church would have seen that text in their day. That, that's, that's how the, the developing uh, institutional church formed by slaves formed by former slaves as, as, as black people in the United States of America began to realize themselves as Christians, as missionaries, as pastors, as church planters, as theologians. Uh, that, that this whole idea that the beloved community is the lifting of every form of injustice and oppression beating on the backs of the oppressed. Uh, that God lifts this burden 
Ah, it makes me think of, you know, come unto me, all ye that labor, and I will give you rest. Take this yoke upon me, this yoke of a broken world lifted off. Now, I know you could look at that text, and depending on your theology, you're going to talk pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, left behind. Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to rapture us, and then there's going to be this season where people can accept Christ, but it's going to be a season of tribulation and oppression. I'm not here to debate that. I'm here to say this. I imagine that my ancestors that were Christians during slavery probably thought they were living through the Great Tribulation. I bet first century Christians thought they were living through the Great Tribulation. I wonder if those in Palestine right uh, right now, um, if, if Palestinian Christians right now think they're living through the Great Tribulation. I wonder if Christians in underground churches in parts of this nation Uh, the humanly trafficked. I wonder if they think they're living through the great, the great tribulation is probably perspectival, (laughs) depending on the conditions in which you live. But I do know this, (laughs) that for those that are in the great tribulation in Christ Jesus, there's a lifting of oppression. Should the church that is forging the beloved community not be committed to the lifting of oppression on the most vulnerable groups among us on this planet? That's what the church must wrestle with as a segment of it is denying the existence of systemic injustice and oppression. As some of us are being accused of being Marxists, I I had to order some books recently from amazon.com so I could study all the things I'm being accused of. Just for believing that justice is an ecclesiological, an ecclesiological part of the portfolio of the mission of the church. And with that, the right Reverend Kimberly Deckel, I will close my initial comments on the beloved community and the church. That was so good, Ephraim. Um, yeah, really good. And I think, you know, for us, I have a couple questions and, and just for everybody who's listening in right now, feel free to put your questions in the Q and a tab. Um, when we think about this, like, so Danae and I, and, and a lot of you who are on here know Danae and we work together at Surge and are doing quite a bit of just kind of brainstorming and discerning and, and listening to the Lord and around the beloved community. And, and what does that look like here in Phoenix, especially with Surge um, and thinking of Surge as this like, movement of the city church and local churches um, pressing into this work together. And so I'm curious in your work, Ephraim, and and so much of what you shared, and even just in your local church in Bayside, um, like what are some examples of how you've seen the beloved community lived out? That's kind of part A of the question. And then part B, do you have any examples of churches that that you've seen move from being predominantly white not multicultural churches to being more of a, a multi-ethnic expression? Yes. Um, let me take the latter part of the question yeah. first. So I'm both a product of an African-American church that my family was a part of planting mm-hmm. in South Minneapolis and an evangelical United Methodist church. Now um, I can remember when my family, when my parents uh, were pursuing purchasing a home 
in um, South Minneapolis. I was only four or five years old, but I can still remember uh, my parents would call about a house that was for sale in South Minneapolis and um, they would get me ready and we'd get in the car and we'd go to the house. And when the realtor looked at my family, they would say to my parents that the house was not for sale, even though there was a for sale sign there. And, and my, my mom or dad would say, well, we just called you 10 minutes ago about the house and you told us to come now. And they would say, I'm sorry, this house isn't for sale. That was kind of the journey into finally my parents purchasing a house in South Minneapolis. Now this evangelical United Methodist church uh, for years was an upper middle class to upper class, all white Methodist church. Uh, I heard stories that there were times when African-American families like myself would move into the community in the fifties and and sixties. And they would, they would go to, to, to um, attempt to go to service at this church and they would be stopped at the door by an usher. They would say, Oh, you must be looking for the Negro Baptist church down the street. And they thought they were actually doing a good thing saying, Hey, I'm sure you want to be at a church where, where, where you'll be comfortable, where, where it's a good environment for you. Um, that began to change when um, the senior pastor uh, wanted to embrace the changing community. Uh, in the 1960s, uh, about 300 white people left that church because they wanted the church to leave the community and go to the suburbs, and the senior pastor uh, didn't felt they should stay. And he hired a youth pastor whose job was to work 50% with the kids in the church and 50% outreach to kids like me that were moving into the neighborhood. And so you fast forward into the 1980s, and um, I'm a teenager uh, in the youth group. I'm, I'm going to the African-American church on Sunday with my family. And on Wednesday night, I'm going to the youth group. By now, four or 500 more white people left this church because it was becoming diverse in the youth ministry. Uh, but praise God, because uh, the pastor and the youth pastor were committed to that church being missional in the community. Um, not only did the church become diverse over time, become multi-ethnic, but eventually uh, over time, uh, there would be a co-pastor team of a white pastor and a black pastor that would co-pastor together. Uh, by the early 2000s, an African-American pastor was the solo senior pastor of that church. Um, and, and the church also had a separate nonprofit uh, organization that uh, basically ran a transitional housing program, a thrift store, uh, a free medical clinic, a free legal clinic, and a tutoring program. And so by, by, be, by becoming more missional and embracing the growing diversity of that community, and by also setting up uh, entities, like why did they need a transitional housing program? Why did they need a thrift store? Why did they need a medical center and a legal center? Well, because of white flight. And because when white flight happened and suburbs developed, then the housing uh, values went down because the blacker and browner a community becomes, the housing values go down. The whiter a community is in our nation, in the United States, the values go up. You're like, whiteness gains equity. <laughs> and so 
that it's unfortunate that that's the reality. Um, but that's why that church not only sought to become diverse and multi-ethnic, but in its, in its, in its missiology, it also had to embrace the sides of the beloved community that empowers the disenfranchised, that, that, that um, embraces uh, and acknowledges and engages the needs of the most vulnerable in its community. Yeah, that's so good. I think a lot of times what we see, you know, locally and then even some of of the kind of national spaces that that I think you and I both do work in is is kind of make maybe the appearance of being like a multi-ethnic church or maybe like the leadership is multi-ethnic. So on the surface, it feels that way or it looks that way. But people who are actually a part of the church especially people of color aren't experiencing it as like that multi-ethnic expression. And it seems like a part of that that you hit on is that it's like both of those things, right? It's like leadership, the church body being multi-ethnic, but then also thinking about the ways in which the people in your church have been impacted um, by systems. And so that's where like a clinic and, and all of that come in. Yeah. So that's a good, I think, like for those of you who are listening, because one of the questions we hear often is, we're a predominantly white church. Um, how do we develop to be a more multi-ethnic expression um, of church? And a lot of times uh, it's kind of one of those things. Maybe people like may hire a staff member who's not white, but that's kind of, it kind of stops there. Um, so it's good to hear that kind of lived out. And then even over like decades with that church, right? How it's like, it's not a quick thing, right? It takes a while. Yeah, that's good. All right. We have a few questions coming in. Feel free, you guys, just to put um, questions in the Q&A box um, and Ephraim will answer them for us. I'm going to go ahead and start with a couple that we have in so far. So one is, how is the beloved community of, let's see, how is the beloved community believing pastors courageously step up to ensure, so how do pastors who agree with beloved community and development of that step up to ensure that the church is a safe and brave place in such a time as this? Uh, one, I would suggest a brand new book by uh, my big sister, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, called Becoming Brave. Mm. Uh, she she writes it from the perspective of what it means based on the book of Esther for women of God to be brave, for our sisters to be brave. But brothers, let this book bless you. Uh, and so her book, Becoming Brave, I, w- I would highly recommend that book resource. Um Man, I'm I'm recommending everybody's books but mine. So I'm gonna have to eventually say one of mine. But you know, yeah, she she should give me a little royalty for for saying that. So that that's a great book. But the other thing I would say is we need to lovingly and courageously preach and teach uh on uh these issues. The Bible is is full of scriptures that lift up justice, that lift up tending to, empowering the most vulnerable among us, equipping and releasing. I mean, there are stories of the, the formerly incarcerated, the, the poor, the disenfranchised, the left for dead. 
the diseased, being healed by God, being equipped, empowered, and released by God as evangelists, as, as apostolic leaders, as church planters. Uh, and so uh, we need to preach that. We also need to look at, especially in the book of Acts, um, we see the ways in which there's a need for reconciliation, empowerment, and justice amongst the various groups of the Jews, whether it's the, the tensions between the Hellenistic and the Hebraic Jews. Uh, but we also see um, in the book of Acts and in the letters of Paul, uh, the need for reconciliation and empowerment and justice to come to bear on the divisions between Jews and Gentiles. And so if we're willing to preach and teach those scriptures and show how they apply today uh, to, the, to the places where bridges of reconciliation and justice need to be built within the church and within communities, that, that can play a role in churches, not only going from homogeneous to diverse churches, but going from diverse churches to reconciling justice-oriented disciple-making churches. That's good. Thank you. Um, a, a kind of an additional question to that. So would you say that there are differences um, in how, say, a white pastor might approach some of that and may, like, step out and kind of be brave in that or be bold in that? versus how you might um, recommend or how like a, a pastor who's say a black pastor might address some of what we're facing today? Yeah, this is going to be a, a, a generalization, yes. but I'm just going to use it to make the point. Uh, in some ways you could say that in this, in this moment, especially in this, this, this moment of Black Lives Matter, in this yeah. moment of racial unrest and yeah. brokenness, uh, um, our white brothers and sisters can take the journey of Nehemiah hmm. while our sisters and brothers of color take the route of Jeremiah. And let me say why that is. So yeah. Nehemiah, I think Nehemiah is a great story because Nehemiah, he was in a place of privilege. You know, he's working for the king. He has a good government job. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's in the king's administration and he finds out about the city in ruins. And when he, when he gets the news, he doesn't say, how is it those people down there let their city get like that? That's horrible. Where are their values? Why don't they pull themselves up by their bootstraps? What is wrong with those people down in Jerusalem that they would allow their community to, to be in ruins like that? You know, we, we should start a center for fathering and just help the dads be better dads. And we should, we should, I don't know, we, we, they should do something down there. And, and again, I'm, I'm cartooning this, but be with me. What Nehemiah does is he actually goes into prayer and he repents and takes responsibility for the city being in ruins. He, he repents and takes responsibility for something he didn't individually do. And the problem is right now is for a segment of our white brothers and sisters, when you bring up systemic racism or systemic injustice, there's an offense as if you're individually accusing them of being a racist, a bigot, uh, of, 
of being an oppressor. And, and so for some reason, Nehemiah didn't get the news of what was going on and take it personal because he was actually working for the system that was complicit in why Jerusalem was in the situation it was, but he didn't get offended. He, he didn't get mad. He actually repented and took responsibility for the sins of those that came before him. And then he used his platform, his privilege, and his resources to mobilize people to do something about the city being in ruins. And, and so to me, I think that Nehemiah provides a biblical framework for, for how our white brothers and sisters, especially those in resourced, privileged networks, can respond to the despair and the brokenness in their nation, in their world. Uh, as people of color uh, have been more like Jeremiah. We, we've been like the crying prophet, you know, talking about the systems, exposing the religious systemic lies and hypocrisy, uh, you know, that we, we've had to stand when other prophets are saying everything's okay, it's not a big deal, I don't know why people are getting so upset and so angry, and Jeremiah had to be the one to say, no, it's not going to be okay. And, 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 God, and if we don't repent and, and if we don't change, if we don't uh, ex, uh, step into what Alan Hirsch calls this, this moment of metanoia, then uh, we're going to face more judgment and more uh, uh, despair. And so, again, of course, there's times when the, the Jeremiah's need to be the Nehemiah's and the Nehemiah's need to be the Jeremiah's. And there's time when all of us need to be Deborah and Esther. That's so good. I think that's really helpful and like really practical and thinking through how folks just depending on like their own kind of social location can respond to what's happening. Um, All right. So another question um, that we have is we're in, I think this is kind of going back to the church that you talked about kind of growing up a part of in Minneapolis, Ephraim. It says, um, were there intercultural dialogue sessions that were informative across ethnicities? Yes. So let me speak to um, when, when I was a part of planting Sanctuary Covenant Church in North Minneapolis, a church still going well today that was planted in 2003 to intentionally be a Christ-centered, multi-ethnic reconciling church in the city. Um, When we first started, you know, when we were a smaller core team, uh, we would have these uh, multi-ethnic meals, dinners, and I would ask everybody to bring a dish, bring something that represents your culture, your upbringing. So we had the enchiladas next to the fried rice, next to the collard greens. We had dinner rolls and cornbread. This was so radical. We had sweet potato pie and pumpkin pie. Lord have mercy. And so I would say to the brothers and sisters in that room, in the same way in which we're digesting one another's foods, we have to digest one another's stories. We have to digest one another's pain one another's hopes and dreams. And our first reaction can't be judgment, denial, defensiveness. Um, I'm not asking you to take someone's dish and fill your whole plate with it, but take enough 
that you're willing to taste and digest to absorb some of who they are so that we can be a more reconciling community. We actually had to contract uh, an outside organization to come in as we were growing to actually um, train us on how to have authentic, reconciling, healthy dialogue across race and across culture and across gender. Because that just doesn't come naturally to broken people in a broken world. And so I, I think those are the kinds of things that you have to intentionally do in, in, a, in a church that intentionally wants to be a multi-ethnic reconciling church that's a picture of the beloved community. So it takes some humility, huh? And asking for help. Yes. Uh, you know, at the church that I am, that I'm at now, Bayside yeah. Church, uh, we actually have, uh, we, we've taken the word help and created an acrostics and yeah. we're developing actually a, um, uh, a diversity and, and um, reconciliation plan. And the H stands for humbly listen. Uh, the E stands for educate and equip yourself. The L stands for love your neighbor and, um, Oh Lord, I'm forgetting the P. I'm on uh, um, a purposeful consistency or something like that. It, it it just means that we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna purpose to stay on the journey, and we're not gonna throw in the towel and give up. Uh, you know, we're we're gonna work to have thicker skin uh, in in this. Um, now we'll see where that goes in the coming months and coming years, but um, but I think. If, if we're willing to bring humility to the table, um, and, and again, um, I think there's got to be, I'm generalizing again, but there's, we have to live in this tension. On one hand, um, our white brothers and sisters need to acknowledge privilege to this degree. Privilege is not... It's not about how blessed you've been. Because I know some of my white brothers and sisters, when they hear white privilege, they go, hey, I, I grew up in a rough neighborhood. My family was poor. I grew up in a small town. We hardly had nothing. Privilege is not, uh, it, it's, it's not the assumption of blessing. It's the absence of specific burdens. That, that's what privilege is talking about. There are certain burdens you, have, you didn't have to bear because of your skin color. Doesn't mean you've always been blessed, it, it, you know, to, to, it, in a material way. Uh, and, and so there, there has to be this acknowledgement of, from a place of privilege, I'm willing to absorb and listen to the cries, the laments, the pain, the brokenness, of my brothers and sisters of color. On the other hand, our journey into the beloved community is not about shaming and guilt tripping. Martin Luther King made this clear. He's like, he's saying, those that I see opposing me, I actually want a second conversion to happen in their lives. I actually want to see them transformed. I want 
As crazy as it sounded, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wanted Bull Connor to be so transformed and have such a radical second conversion in his heart that Bull Connor and George Wallace would become a part of the beloved community. Yeah. That, that, that's how radical he thought about it. And, and, so, um, and, and so I think we've got to say this is not about shaming and guilting white people, but it's not. And it's also not about the denial of the systemic oppression and injustice and profiling that too many people of color experience in their daily lives. Mm. That's good. Thank you. That kind of reframing of privilege, privilege is not an assumption of blessing, right? Of like this material blessing, but it's an absence of specific burdens. That's really helpful. Um, Because I think you hit on that, that a lot of like, I mean, we all have kind of this, can have this response to different things of sort of like shame and guilt. And then that turns to like a defensiveness. And then sometimes an inability to have like empathy and understanding. But when some of that is kind of like relieved and taken off, it's more about an absence of something. So here's, here's one example. Here's one example, my dear sister, that you'll relate to on this absence of a burden. Just last year, a bill was passed that now is effective in the workplace that allows you, Reverend Kimberly, to work in corporate America and go to the office with your hair looking exactly Mm -hmm. how it looks right now. You can go to work and not be pulled in an office and have your boss tell you, hey, you know, no offense, I love your hair. Can I touch it? Mm-hmm. I love your hair, but I was wondering if you could do something different with it. Like, did you see Shalika's hair? Like, you know, it's more, like white women have not had to worry about being pulled in the office because of their hair. Yeah. In its natural state. Yeah. Right. And so that's that's an example. And that the Crown Act was just passed. Yeah. Like, think about that. Right. It was just passed last year. Yeah. That's an example of privilege yep. and the absence of a burden. Mm-hmm. It's like a really concrete. In our faces kind of example. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's good. Thanks, Ephraim. All right. So another question. Um, so this is in response, and you, you t- touched on this earlier, like I think so many of us have experienced this, um, that is like you start bringing up justice, like you said, something that is like deeply rooted um, in a biblical Christian theology, the idea of justice that we love and serve a God who is, is for justice and seeking that for his people. But nowadays you bring that up and, you know, varying types of justice. And it's like, you're a Marxist, you're a critical race theorist, like all these things that oftentimes the people who are kind of throwing that out don't even really know what they mean. And like you said, it's like, I don't like, what are you calling me? Let me go read this book to have a better understanding of what this even is. So the question said tongue in cheek is like, do we have permission just to slap people who call us that? (laughs) Um, but you have permission to slap them with the word of God. <laughs> there you go. Um, and so I think, yeah, like with that though, what, you know, and you've, you've, I think you've touched on the, that a bit already, but like, what is your response to that when 
when people, um, you know, it feels like it's like a delegitimizing, right? It's kind of a quieting, a dismissing. Of- yeah. Um, what was, um, I would respond to that in this way. It, it is it is definitely discouraging for those of us in the body of Christ that are attempting to provide a deeply biblically rooted understanding of justice and empowerment and transformation to show that the declarations and demonstrations of Jesus had both spiritual supernatural and social natural implications. Mm -hmm. I don't know how else to interpret when Jesus declares and demonstrates the kingdom of God through leading people to salvation, but also curing diseases, casting out evil spirits, raising the dead, feeding the hungry, giving dignity to the marginalized and outcast, and then says to his followers, you will do greater things than this. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. And, and so, um, the, and so the only thing I can think of that would keep the church from being about justice biblically would be if it is, profiting too much, growing too much from being complicit in injustice. If not for that, I can't think of any excuse why the church would, would, would reclaim justice that has been hijacked because the church released it by not seeing it as a critical element of the gospel. Mm. Uh, and and so that that that's one. Two, um, man, people like Christina Edmondson and Jamar Tisby and Latasha Morrison, uh, Danae Pierre, uh, have articulated this so well in their writings and in their social media posts uh, recently. But but I I will say this: the brothers and sisters that I know that are on the front lines of reconciliation, justice, multi-ethnic ministry, folks like yourself, we are not critical race theorists. We didn't take one class. I I don't, I can say critical race theory wasn't offered when I was in seminary. (laughs) I mean, literally, I just ordered a book on the essential writings of critical race theory only so I could understand it enough to let people know more where I am. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's an unfortunate distraction. Yeah. Sometimes people that don't understand something and they're offended by it because they don't understand it, take something else they don't understand to respond to what they don't understand that offends them. Yeah. And and so I'm not I'm not sure that the people that are talking about Marxism and socialism and critical race theory 
even really know what critical race theory is. I, I the, the little bit I know is that it mainly was developed in law schools and it, it, it's mainly a, a philosophy, an academic discipline or theory that um, law professors uh, used to analyze and critique how it is that in society you can have laws passed to address segregation and racial inequality, and on the other side of those laws passed, still have bias, systemic injustice, and profiling in society. And so, it's, as best I know, it's, it's a tool academically to analyze why bias still exists, and it provides some solutions to address it. Um, but that that's not my lane. My, my lane is to bring um, practical theology in a way that exposes injustice, but also shows examples of how the church, without compromising its real mission, yeah. can bring the kingdom of God to bear on injustice. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Thank you. So we have another question, and this will probably be one of the last ones. So if anybody has a, a last minute question they want to pop in, go ahead and put it in the Q&A tab at the bottom. And so this one is just asking about you, Ephraim, um, in a sense, just saying, like, how are you as a person of color um, doing in this current, like, political season in the middle of a pandemic um, in the middle of, you know, it's it's like that the racial injustices that we've been seeing over the summer aren't necessarily new, but we've seen kind of more attention brought to them. So how are you doing with those burdens? How are you bearing them? Um, and then also, how are you encouraging um, people who are part of your life, your church community in this season? Sure. Um, so one Definitely, um, this has been a traumatic season. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that I know for me personally, watching the video of George Floyd crying out for his life was was painful to watch uh, because how can you not be traumatized on some level, grieved by watching a video like that? For me, it was compounded by the fact that I grew up on that block. I grew up in that neighborhood. Uh, the, the cup food store that he came out of, that was called O'Toole's Drugstore when I was a kid. And I, I would shovel snow and rake leaves and in the neighborhood. And the little money I received from that, I probably bought more Twinkies and Hostess apple pies and ices in that store than I can remember. Um, so I, that, that was traumatizing for me. Um, absorbing pain, wrestling with trauma, this should not be denied by Christians. I think that when you read the book of James or you read the letters of Paul, or even when you read about Jesus in the garden before he faces crucifixion, you see um, even the savior wrestling with trauma, absorbing pain uh, and affliction. So we can't deny these things. They are real. And we, and we, 
we, there's no doubt that we need spiritual disciplines and we need um, purposeful practices in our lives to deal with it. So for me, I have a spiritual director that I meet with on a monthly basis. Um, I, I have to get out on prayer walks. I, I have to exercise. I have to pay attention to how much sleep I'm getting. Um, uh, my, my moments in the word, not for a sermon, not for writing, but for my own nourishment spiritually is important. And, um, you know, I'm reading a book right now called Unspeakable Joy by Barbara Holmes, talking about just um, the, the contemplative uh, practices of, of the Black church and of African-American Christians. So uh, I, I really, um, I'm trying to pay attention to my own health. Uh, I, I have to be purposeful uh, by myself with my wife to, to get away, uh, to, to say, you know what? Um, it is okay for me to get away from the activity of the church and, and um, you know, and, and figure out ways to go today I'm not doing anything that has to do with church. <laughs> we have to find those rhythms. We have to have our, a Sabbath. And then what am I saying to people? I'm By being in a healthy way, in a reasonable way, transparent about my own life, I'm trying to call people to their own intentional rhythms and practices so that as Pete Scazzaro talks about, there's an emotionally healthy spirituality that, that we take on in our lives. I think that's like a good word to end on the significance and the importance of that, like Sabbath and that health and taking care of ourselves in this season for sure. Um, Ephraim, this was so helpful. Um, and I think just a lot for us to be thinking about in our local contexts too, as we all do our best to, give people, right, like a, a taste, a glimpse into the, the kingdom of heaven, just a foretaste of that and what it looks like to really intentionally move our churches and our ministries toward um, the beloved community and a real multi-ethnic expression of that. So we are really thankful to have had you with us today. Um, tell, tell people, though, too, um, your book, books. Oh. Sure. Um, uh, my, my latest book uh, yeah. came out just uh, two or three years ago, I think maybe now, um, is, is called uh, Killing Us Softly. And it's how, how do we live as right side up people in an upside down world? And it's basically exploring dying to self as a spiritual discipline in order to become a reconciler. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, a book I wrote, uh, man, years ago called The Post-Black, Post-White Church is being re-released in paperback form uh, by Fortress Press. So you can either order the hard cover uh, that came out uh, uh, under Josie Bass uh, Publishers uh, a few years ago. Uh, I believe that was in 2012 or 13. Or you can get uh, the uh, the uh, the newly revised re- release through Fortress Press and paperback that uh, should be coming out here in October. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I wanted to make sure with all the other great book recommendations you gave that you told people about yours too. So yeah, yeah. I'm looking for forward to books that written by Kimberly uh, Deckel. So, you know, uh, I you know, have, <laughs> 
we'll, we'll see. We'll see what the spirit does with that. Cause I have no, <laughs> I've just got to like keep moving along right now, but yeah. Thank you so much. We appreciate you and just your wisdom and your, and your teaching us today. Oh, grateful to be on and uh, would look forward to being a part of this again in the future. Yeah. So thanks so much yeah. for having me. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.